Good morning, everybody, and welcome to episode 144 of the Quickie Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Hopkins, and I am so glad you're here today. Today, my guest is Kevin Cantrell from Kevin Cantrell Studio in Mantua, Utah. During this episode, we talk about how he moved around a whole lot when he was younger to some pretty cool places, and how he used to do a lot of flip book animations, and that was his sort of intro to drawing and illustration. We also talk about the person that introduced him to design and got him hooked on it. He also shares a story with us, but when he got a job in New York, right around the time he was about to get married, he was planning on going to New York for this job, and on the first day of his honeymoon, he got a phone call about this job and was told that it wasn't there anymore. The job didn't exist anymore. He tells us that story. We also talk about the distillery project he was a part of that he got to design the bottle for as well as the label to go with it. We talk about the Nike Bat project that he was a part of and the challenges that they had to overcome in order to create that project. Kevin also tells us about the book that he's working on and what that is all about. Kevin and I dive right into this episode. There is no pleasantries. We just get right to it. So buckle up. Ladies and gentlemen, my guest, Kevin Cantrell. Here we go. Welcome to the Quickie Podcast, the daily interview show where we talk to graphic designers about their journey to the creative field, and we do it in 30 minutes or less. So, are you ready for a Quickie? Good morning, Kevin. How are you? Good, good. How are you? Doing great. Thanks so much for being a guest on the show today. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for thinking of me. So the first question is always the toughest. Are you ready for a quickie? <laughs> you know, as ready as I can be, I guess. <laughs> All right. Um, well, briefly tell the listeners about yourself. About myself. So I, I was born in Scranton, Pennsylvania, home of the office. Nice. <laughs> My mom is South African. She was born in Rhodesia, which is now Zimbabwe. She wow. moved to South Africa when she was very young. This is actually funny, but we used to think her, because her last name, her maiden name is Monchoy, which we always assumed it was that. But my, so my wife is a genealogist, and she recently discovered that Monchoy is actually not her real maiden name. What? <laughs> that about 100 years ago, her, uh, her grandfather left his wife and, um, and left Britain to come to South Africa. And I guess divorce laws and whatnot, he, he went, you know. And I, and I, anyway, so he left Britain and he took, and his, his maiden name was, or his, sorry, his, his name was actually Winter, but he took the middle name of his mother. And so then he left with, I guess, a younger lass. They came to South Africa and we're all a bunch of bastards. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, so, but it's funny because my mom didn't know this. Uh, and so I, so my, my wife was able to, discuss, and, and she had to do a lot of cross references, you know, a lot of documents that she found, you know, she, she found the naval record of, of the ship that they came across with. I mean, she found all of the documentation to back it. And then she, and then so when I told my mom, she's like, oh, that makes so much, and I, because I thought my mom was going to be devastated because when I grew up, she always said, my great, great grandfather, the Duke of Versailles, <laughs> which is oh, probably my. not true. Yeah. <laughs> Good story, though. Uh, but she, and so she, when she found, you know, we used to go and visit um, a family that were the Winters, and and, and she's like, they must have been my cousins. I had no idea. 
And so now she knows. And so anyway, it's, it filled in a lot of gaps for her, which was really fascinating. So anyway, so I grew up in South I spent six years of my life in South Africa. My dad was in the military. My, my mom and my dad actually met on a blind date at BYU here in Utah. <laughs> okay, that's um, so and, random. Yeah, really. Well, I mean, the, the connection was the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, also known as Mormons. Uh, my mom had recently converted, and so she came to BYU, and she met my dad. And, you know, I guess part of their prenuptial agreement was that they would spend part of their time in Africa. And so my dad was stationed in Germany for about six years. So right after, you know, Scranton, Pennsylvania, they, they moved to, uh, he was relocated to, to Germany. And then we were there for about six years, and we went to South Africa for about six years, and then we moved back to America. Now, again, when, so I moved back when I was about 14. I had no memories of America. So when I came here, it was just, it was such culture shock. I mean, I oh, remember I was on the airplane. Like a blackberry soda. I'm like, oh, this is like the tastiest beverage I've ever had in my life. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so we were on the airplane because, um, you know, we can, and we actually moved to Washington State at first because we had some friends of ours from Germany that were there, and so they they put us up for a little bit, which was very nice of them. And then we somehow, my dad's, you know, said that we're never moving to Utah. We're not going there, and somehow we're in Utah. So <laughs> I, I, I love here. Except for, you know, I served a two-year mission in Brazil uh, in 2003 through 2005. Mm-hmm. And then when I got back, and before, I, I actually was introduced to design. I've always, I, I lo- you know, I love comics. I always try to draw comics. I, I love illustrating flipbook, doing flipbook animations as a kid. Nice. And so when I was a kid, I, you know, I loved the X-Men, Wolverine, uh, Mag- Magneto, though I used to call it Magneto because I thought that sounded cooler. It does. Totally um, does. Magnetism, you know, that mag- magnetism, anyway. But anyway. So, you know, growing up, I love, I, love, I love fantasy. Actually, that's one of my big uh, dreams is to be a fantasy writer, actually. And so I would, I would illustrate fantasy, you know, series from books and stuff and comics. And then, you know, I was in, I was in school and a, friend, um, and a friend who was actually in my same ward, my church, he was, he was studying design at BYU. And I saw what he did. And I was like, oh, my gosh, that, that's, that's what I want to do. And so I saw what he was, he was doing an identity system. And I just saw that. I knew that I wanted to be a graphic designer. Okay, and then so. I went, so I got accepted into BYU's program. Um, I, I did one year in their core program, and then I, went, I, I took a two-year stint, went on my mission, came back. Uh, I was 21, and then you know I did the program. And the funny thing is, is when, when I was in school, I never thought that I could do lettering or, or do custom type. I, I always thought, you know, that's for the masters. That's for people way beyond. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which is funny because, I mean, and, and I don't consider myself a master of anything, but masters don't become masters until first they're, you know, amateurs. <laughs> And, you know, the, the, the typical journeyman row where you, where you have to learn and, 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 and then, you, you know, through tons and tons and tons and tons of practice and you, you can potentially become a master. So, but anyway, so, so, but I learned all the core competency skills. Obviously, I, I had a natural gift with typography. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, shortly after graduating, it was an, it was an 08, so the 08 crash. I actually had a job lined up in New York and I got married right as I graduated. And, and um, the, the, the agency that I had a job with, they called me the morning after we got married on our honeymoon and said, sorry, your job's retracted. Oh, and so I man. Just got married. I was, I was thinking I was moving to New York. And actually, I was really jaded for a couple of years because I thought all my opportunities were gone by not being able to go to New York. I mean, and, and in 08, they were just, they were so, it was so hard to get great work opportunities. So luckily, it was a place I was freelancing with in Salt Lake, uh, Hints Creative. They took me on, and I, you know, I started there. And Christian Hansen is an exceptional art director, really amazing at fostering talent and and really teaching process and how to be methodical and what you do and strategy, brand strategy, which I, I just kind of dip my, my my feet in the water there. Mm-hmm. And so really, so but but you know, short story short uh, short story. I, I didn't really enjoy what I was doing, 
Uh, I love the people I work with. I just wasn't very satisfied in what I was doing. So I started doing lettering on the side because, you know, when I was in school, I saw this Victorian style. I'm like, man, I really love that stuff. But in school, I just didn't know how to do it. And so, and I don't even know how I went from not knowing how to do it then to then being able to figure it out, you know, in my career because I didn't, nobody taught me lettering. Nobody taught me how to do type design. I just, so what I did is I saw the Sanborn Map series, which is a really beautiful Victorian type series. Uh-huh. And so what I would do is, is I'm like, well, I'll figure out how they did it. And so I, I, I used, I created a kind of this, I developed kind of this unique way of drawing type on a grid. And so I would break down, because everything, every, everything in design is all about, it's all about the grid, right? And so I would look at the type and I would mathematically break it into a grid and then I would redraw it. And then I got really good at redrawing it. And then I was able to, from that experience, learn a lot of the nitty gritties about type and letter forms. And so then I was able to, once I gained enough competency in that, I was able to then create really, and, and I just, I don't know, I don't know what it is. I just, I would say it's my French roots, but I'm actually British. <laughs> you know? So, you know, Rococo, whatever. But I guess, you know, you know, you got the Victorian era, the, the gold era and, you know, Queen Victoria's reign. So maybe that's where it comes from. So anyway, so I love Victorian and I've, I've loved super ornamental stuff. So I just started really gravitating towards that in my, in my style. And I, you know, I've done deco, I've done VN secession, I've done revivalist, I've done modern takes on it. And so, and so I did this, I did this poster series called the seven day series and I haven't even finished it yet, but, and, and, and I did the first, the first poster, which was called luminaries and this beautiful paper by moon dream called group of coordinates. And it's, which turns translucent when you hot stamp it. So if you showed up to the light, you can see light through, it's really beautiful. And that was the first, and it was on the creation. And so the first day was let there be light. And so it was perfectly, it, was, it felt like a, a really excellent interpretation of the, of the subject matter. Uh-huh. And I did that. And then suddenly I started people, I posted on social media. I had like no followers then. I, I don't know if I necessarily have that many followers now, but, but then uh, this wedding location in the UK saw my work. And so they hired me to rebrand uh, this is Fetchin Park in the UK. And I always like branding. I, I've always considered branding to be my, my first skill. My, my primary skill set is, is branding. Okay. And then lettering and typography is kind of a secondary skill set that I've complemented with that. And then obviously strategy, brand strategy positioning. And so when, when, when they contacted me, I was like, oh, this is great. I mean, I had, I'd always done a lot of branding work at the agency I was at, but I hadn't really combined custom lettering with branding yet. Mm-hmm. So this was the first opportunity to, to try that. I did a little bit with a, with a project I worked on um, outside of my job called Hawthorne and Wren with a, another um, agency I work with sometimes and, and my old professor at BYU, he, you know, we work together a lot because we have really great rapport. But, and so this was, Professor Park was really the first time I applied custom lettering to a branding system. And so, and that did very well, you know, it got the TDC, got the print regional. Um, and then, you know, from that people then saw my, my more of my, my, and I extended my poster series to do the Aguas and the Terra one. Uh, which also did very well and, and got me a lot of visibility. And then I, Commonwealth Coffee contacted me, so I branded them. And then, you know, I was on this threshold where I was, I was getting some more, you know, I did the, the Lost Profit label for Orphan Barrel for a great agency in New York. And then I just started getting all this work. I'm like, well, and, and I was just trying to, I was, I was deciding to become the partner at my previous agency or going solo, and it just felt better to go solo. And right as I went solo, I, I was working on the Cotton House Hotel with a friend of mine in Madrid, who I also did the Silk Logan Via with them. Mm-hmm another project recently anyway great friend of mine really great designer he's also uh, from my alma mater from BYU and so that's kind of how we knew each other <clears throat> so I did that and then I also bid on a project in New York which would end up being the Fitzroy and I won that from uh, against some other agencies in New York which is crazy because I mean I, I was still building my portfolio at this time and then we named the building which was I mean I never thought I would name a building in New York enough <laughs> Fitzroy which was amazing really I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of that work and that was kind of 
that Cotton House Fetch, and those are some of the first projects that I really worked on. And then for some reason, I started doing all this alcohol, which is funny because I don't drink alcohol. <laughs> so I did Tom's Town. I've done Star Eating Spirits. I've done, oh my goodness, uh, I've done some wine. I've done, anyway. And then, you know, and then I just started getting a lot of these, you know, uh, some more hotel work. So uh, one hotel I've been doing, I've been working on for the last couple of years, is called Villa Baluna, where we named it. We did the strategic platform for them, a project I'm really proud of. So we did them. And then... <clears throat> So we also, I, I want to just sort of, um, I've also done some card decks, and so I did a card deck for Theory Eleven called Citizens. And then Tavern on the Green in New York, the owner saw the Citizens, or or he, I think, did he see? I think he saw my Citizens deck, and he contacted Theory Eleven. He's like, "Who did this deck? I would love to hire them to do a deck for me." And so then they hired, and then so then Tavern on the Green reached out to me, and, and what started out as a card deck project, I took the liberty of redoing all their logos <laughs> while I was <laughs> while I was working on it. And again, this is this is tough because I actually really love the illustrator who did it, Stephen Noble. He's an exceptional illustrator, and so I didn't want. And so and he had a great foundation. I just what I brought to the table was pretty much just a shift in hierarchy to bring the name more to the foreground and create a custom monogram, um, update the typography, and then I, I, I did I did some modifications to the sheep so that it would it would produce better in, in specialty printing. So anyway, so then what turned it was a card deck turned in this. I mean, I, we're just doing signage for them now. You know, we're doing some ad campaigns for them. So it's really turned into this really excellent project and, and client with them. You know, and then we've done, you know, we've done, uh, I say we, me, my business partner, you know, I, I won Young Guns Award about, uh, man, has it been five years? Five years ago, I, I won Young Guns. And then my, who's now my business partner from satellite office, Eric Atkinson, contacted me. He's like, hey, I love your work. I think, you know, we have a lot we could offer you to extend your capabilities. And and so then, you know, Eric's a brand strategist. He has a master's, you know, from the Kellogg School of Branding. He's, he's an exceptional strategist, an excellent copywriter, which I don't, I don't do copywriting, although funny, my, my aspiration is to be a fantasy writer, but that's a very different type of writing. <laughs> different, very different type, yeah. Contacted me and we just formed a great rapport and, <clears throat> and really I, I consider him an, um, an indisposable asset. Uh, he, you know, that's uh, helped me a lot of the branding systems that I've had. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean. Um, so I wanted to just sort of dive back and unpack a little, a few of the things that you had mentioned there. Um, your, uh, you had mentioned that you were introduced to sort of design and creative uh, by somebody that you were connected to in church. Around what age was that? Were you like 18 or so? I was 15 or 16, I believe. Okay. I want to say, I want to say 16. You know, I, I took AP classes in art. I was always in it. You know, I actually hated painting, but I loved drawing. Mm-hmm. I don't know why was that. I never liked painting. <laughs> but I took all these APR classes, and I, and 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 so my 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 teacher there referred me to uh, an old graduate of hers, which happened to be a member of my church as well. And so I met him, and then you know he kind of showed me what he was doing because I was trying to think of what I could do, you know, because when you know when you're a junior in high school, you're starting to think about what you want to do in college. Yeah, for sure. So, that's a like tough yeah. point where they make you choose. <laughs> Sorry, what? Oh, so that's that tough point where they start asking you at 15, 16 years old, where you know what do you want to do the rest of your life. I know, which is like, which is kind of so crazy, you know. I mean, you're 15 or 16, you don't really know much of anything, and no, but for exactly. me, but for whatever reason, like I just I knew when I saw that that's what I wanted to do. So, so prior to that, during your childhood, did you have any other introduction to design? Did you have any designers in your family or creatives in your family like that int- that sort of showed you that, or was this sort of you know, 15, 16 years of age? You know, is that where it really started to ramp up for you? So I was actually very much in the film. My, my oldest brother studied film, and, and he his dream was to be a screenwriter. He loved writing, and, and so I was I was that's probably that's probably my interest also in fantasy writing too, because he was a writer, and I was really interested in that. So he was a writer. I mean, let's let's see. My my grandfather was actually 
um, a fashion design. I don't know if I, I don't. I mean, it was more of just a hobby of his. He loved. Um, he was an exceptional um, artist, actually, and a, and a visionary. So he there's so uh, there's a there's a city or not, well, not a city, it's, it's an amusement park. It's called Goldweave City in Salt Lake City, which is like you know like an equivalent of like you know I mean Disneyland kind of a theme park that's based on the gold mines there in Africa. Uh-huh. But he actually drew some of the original plants for it, and then someone stole the idea from him. <laughs> and so oh, then they geez. took them off, and then he did it. But but he was really an exceptional visionary, and he was an amazing artist. Uh, so I, I actually have his sketchbook, which is which is really, really cool. Um, you know, just amazing drawing ability. And so that's, I kind of think that's maybe that's where it comes from, is on my, my grandfather's side. That's so cool. Um, you I mean, have his sketchbook. My, my younger brother's a designer now. He, you know, he works for a uh, design studio in New York. Uh, yeah. But other than that, I don't know if I really had much... I didn't know what design was until I met, um, you know, who, who's still my good friend today, you know, who I met in high school. I didn't know what design was. That's cool. Um, so, Kevin, I want to ask you how you have utilized print um, and print design in your career. Um, do you have any recent stories around printer packaging that you're really proud of? Um, I, you know, for Tomstown, something that's really cool is we were in, in this, especially I work with a lot of entrepreneurs and usually, especially in the spirits category who don't have a ton of money. And so usually what they do is, you know, they start out and they use a pre-existing bottle. So Tomstown did that route, but they were, they, they, they've been so smart and they're, they're, you know, the strategy and the branding has been very successful for them. And just what, I mean, you know, they, they become really a cultural hub in, in Kansas city where a lot of people, it's, it's such an, an event to go to Tomstown in Kansas city. And I mean, the, the history behind it, and so they, they were so successful the first year that they were then able to manufacture their own bottle. And I got to design that, which is really cool. So I got to design, you know, a custom glass bottle for Tomstown, which probably, I mean, that's one of the more unique things I guess I've been able to, it's not very often you get to do a custom three-dimensional product. Mm-hmm. And so that, you know, that was really cool. I, I love multi-level embossing because it creates a, a dimensionality to print that lifts it from the page. And so I mean, the, their, their labels have that. Although the newer ones, it's a little harder to tell than, than their previous labels that, that they have multi-level embossing. But really, the, the, sh- the shift was more to have the bottle become this iconic silhouette that you would you could see from 30 feet away. You know, oh, it's Tom's Town, simply by the bottle. And the label becomes more of a secondary pass. Yeah, so we, they needed to complement one another for sure. Yeah, right. I mean, I've done what, one of the coolest things I've done production-wise was actually the Nike bat. Um, and that was funny because I almost turned down that project they caught, you know, um, actually when I was in New York, right before, this is, um, between my junior and senior year in college, I got, I had an internship in New York. This was the people who offered me a job and then retracted it and they retracted it. And I, I want to emphasize that they didn't do it because they were trying to be mean or no, not you know, they actually ended up having a huge financial crisis on their end. And that's, and I learned that later on. That's one of the reasons they, they had to retract the offer. Uh-huh. So they weren't, and it was a tough situation because. Um, they didn't obviously. You know, I was. They knew I was getting married, and, and it happened kind of after I was engaged, and, and they knew about. It. So I think they were trying to manage it as best they could to not deflate my marriage, but then to tell me before I got over there. So, so I think they did the best they could with the situation. But anyway, um, I met a friend when I was at Valentine Group named John Moon, and John Moon would then later go on to become an art director at Nike, and so. He then, you know, noticed because we followed, he followed me on Instagram. He saw a lot of the custom type I was doing. So when I was doing the Nike bath, he then contacted me and, and, and he was like, hey, I have this project. We wanted to create this really special piece for the home run king of the high school competition that Nike sponsors. Would you be interested? And I was packed at the time. Like I was so busy. I'm like, I don't even know how I'm going to do this. And so I'm like, but it's Nike. You know, I've always wanted to do something for Nike. And then I took it on. And then I reached out, to, because I was so busy, I reached out to my friend who I just met actually, Car- uh, Carlos Pagan, 
who's an incredible designer and lettering talent, um, who anyway, who's also a fellow young gun. Um, actually, he was on the, the 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 judging board panel that got me in the young gun. So <laughs> nice. I, I always think that I bribed him to get me in anyway. And so so we kind of so I, I tagged him like, hey, dude, I'm just swamped. Is it, can you can you help me with this? And so um, he helped create kind of the central type piece. And then and then we went back and forth, and we would just we would you know I would then do my thing. I would add on all the secondary type, a lot of the filigree. And he would take it and he would add on his his unique take to it. But the biggest challenge of the Nike bat was how to do the, the laser etching across the entire circumference of the bat because it tapers. Uh-huh. And so there's no machine that can actually do, you know, a laser etching across a tapered cylinder like that. And so, I, you know, I, and, and at that time, I, I think I just discovered, oh, yeah, because of the Citizens deck, I just discovered Big Secret in, in a, shoot, where are they? Are they in Virginia? I can't remember where, where Big Secret Big Secret is located. Anyway, so I contacted uh, Jason Lefton, who's the owner of Big Secret. I'm like, hey, dude, like I just got this product. I told him I can do it. I have no idea. Can you do this? And he's like, oh yeah. Uh, he's like, well, we'll figure it out. <laughs> he's like, I think I'm 80% sure I can. I, I have an idea of how we can do it. And so then I call my friend back. I'm like, we can do this. We can totally do this. And I had no idea if we actually could do this. <laughs> nice. And so and so what we did is is he created a way where he could hack his machine and do it in, in, and do it in, in two different passes. But what we had to do to get it on the on the thin pass that then tapers to the thicker part of the bat is we had to actually warp the artwork um, about 200% vertically because mm-hmm. the machine would then compress the artwork to fit it into the narrow taper. Yeah. And so I had to I had to adjust the artwork and take out certain areas that could that when it would then compress back to its normal its normal size it wouldn't feel really congested compared to the fat part. And so anyway that was a really interesting mechanical difficulty to figure out and we were able to you know create a, a type of art style that would really accommodate the the gaps that would mm-hmm. that you use and it it worked out really well so that that's probably the most challenging piece i've done from an from an engineering standpoint in production okay i love how you sort of you even like segued it into the next question even for me kevin you can have the show take it over just take <laughs> care of it um because the next couple of questions i have for you dive into some of the challenging times in your design career and we talked about some of the brilliant projects you've been able to be a part of some of the tough stuff and the challenges you've had along with some projects um but now i want to ask what's been the most challenging time in your design career so far why is it why was it challenging and how did you get through it so it's probably a couple times. So, you know, when I was, I will say, you know, when, when I didn't get to go to New York and I was, I really felt it was a huge letdown to stay in Salt Lake because I just didn't, I didn't think I was going to be able to do any good work in Salt Lake or, or learn what I needed to, to be successful long-term. But, then I, but you know, and, you, and I love this by Steve Jobs, is you can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking backwards. Yes. And there's no way I would be where I'm at had that event not happened in a lot of ways. And so I look back and with just immense gratitude and, and, you know, feeling that there was, there was some, I don't know, I guess you could say divine guidance and how it all worked out. But, but I think the darkest point of my career was probably one or two years into my agency life. I just, I, you know, we had some really tough clients that it was just so hard to do good work for. And I just, I hated what I was doing and I just felt like I wasn't progressing or learning what I needed to. And so I just, I just felt like I wasn't, maybe I really wasn't cut out to be a designer. You know, I, I was working on projects and, 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 you know, I'm in a position now where people hire me for specific skill sets or clients come to me because of expertise that I have. And so it's already, you know, 
spoken that I'm really good at a specific thing. Uh-huh. Um, now I'm not I'm not exceptional at everything. Uh, I believe I'm exceptional in you know a couple things, and I'm I'm very good in in several things, but I'm, and I'm bad in a lot of a lot of things in life. <laughs> but but really in that moment, that's when I kind of reached out. I'm like, you know what? Like, and and I, and I worked really hard, and I got a lot better in my agency, and I would become pretty much you know the the, the main art art director there. Through that period, I just I just started working, you know, really dedicating myself. Even on the side, I would take on extra work so I could get better, I could get faster. And then, you know, after you know becoming, I think, um, and getting to a better point where I became very methodical, very efficient in process and strategy, I just became a much more sound designer overall. Then I reached the, the next hurdle was, well, I don't really like what I'm doing. <laughs> like I became a lot, I, I became very competent in doing the type of work and clients that we had. And I learned, I mean, I learned so much there. I, I learned how to run a business. I learned how to art direct. I learned how to be very methodical and be, be able to guarantee con- continued excellence from project to project, not just, you know, be good at one project and bad at one. I, I learned how to be c- consistent, which I think is, is all process driven. But I, I just, you know, then, you know, in that point, I'm like, you know, I just don't like this at all. I, I hate what I'm doing. I mean, maybe I mean, yeah, it's, it's funny, you know, you have these crosses. One, I'm not good enough to do this. Then, oh, I am good enough, but I don't like what I'm doing. Maybe I should change professions. But that's when I then reached out and started, you know, I discovered the Sanborn Map series, which was very much in line with an earlier piece I, I found on my internship in New York, which was a piece by Devera, which is this kind of a, a eccentric jewelry, super expensive jewelry, or I, I guess just accoutrements. Like they just have really expensive, like you're talking twenty, fifty, dollars $100,000 little souvenir oh. pieces you can get from around the world. But their identity was this incredibly beautiful stationary um, system and I, I looked at it. It was this very Victorian, kind of Spencerian script style uh-huh. um, that had these illustrative components and it had uh, thermography, so it kind of raised ink, not as good as engraving. But but and I saw that piece like and I tried to imitate it, but I couldn't. I just I didn't know how to. And so really, by learning the, the how to be process driven and break things down into their pieces of hint, it taught me. It gave me the framework for how I was then able to think through and create my own custom lettering process when I found the Sandboard Map series. And so all of those years before, learning process, learning how to look at a problem and break it down into its pieces and, and to systemize things, it taught me how to approach, how to be, how to problem solve, uh, which I didn't really learn in school. I learned how to make things look good in school, but I didn't learn how to problem solve. I learned that hint. And so then I was able to look at this piece, the Sandboard Map Series, and break it down and create my own unique way of, of lettering mm-hmm. that then propelled me to be able to do what I do now. And so that, that really was such, a, um, such a, an impetus for me moving forward and being successful now. And, and since then, I've had, I mean, I've had, I've had a couple clients who fired me, which, have been, which has been rough. You know, I almost got fired on the Fitzroy, actually, which is actually kind of crazy because um, I created this really ornate system for them initially, and, and I used the color palette that they gave to me. I didn't even choose the color palette, and then, like, oh, we got to change this. The color's all wrong, or we're going to fire you. I'm like, well, you guys gave me those colors. You know that, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. But they're like, in our testing, it doesn't test well. I'm like, okay, and so... But but I knew that that the that the type and the and the logo and the pieces I built were perfect. I just had to just remix the the, the ingredients for the yeah. recipe. So I pretty much just stripped it down, and it worked very well. And, and the crisis was averted. But anyway, um, but I'd say you know, I actually recently had a really really challenging experience where you know I, I was brought on. You know, I work in, in kind of two main capacities. I work directly with clients, or I have agencies that will contact me and hire me for a specific skill set. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's branding, sometimes it's lettering. In this case, I, w- I was brought onto an agency to help a really big company um, in, a, in a rebrand, and it's a, it's a company I'm very familiar with. I have a lot of um, affinity for, 
And I, and I knew I shouldn't take on the projects. I knew, I'm like, look, the, the time frame is crazy. It's, it's just crazy fast. But I felt kind of this need to help out because of my relationship with the client. And I can't really reveal what that is nope, until later sure. on. Yep. But, you know, so I, I mean, for the last three months, I would work till 3 a.m. I would work weekends. And I don't work weekends for a lot of reasons. One, because it's just not, it's just not, it's not really a, something you can maintain if you want to be in this industry long. You have to have a good balance of life and work to be able to design and do excellent work. You have mm-hmm. to have some time. And so I, I but I sacrificed that because I really wanted to help this, this client out. And then I, I essentially, I essentially got fired. I mean, this is like, this is just a few weeks ago from the project and they disregarded everything that we recommended that I thought was really intelligent and really would have solved a lot of the issues that they brought us on to help them resolve. But, you know, short story short, there was a lot of politics involved. There was a lot of, a lot of politics involved and a lot of things that just were beyond my control. And I did the best I could with the situation. Mm-hmm. But it was a, it was probably one of the most disappointing, I'd say, periods of my entire career. And this is just recently. But, you know. Oh, and how do you, so how do you, how do you move past that? What's the, what's the process? Do you just, do you, I mean, cause everybody naturally would struggle with a little bit of self doubt, a little bit of, did I, did I do something like, is there something I should have done better? You know, and question everything sure. you did when really some situations are completely out of control. So how do you work through that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I know it's funny, like my, my book, and my book talks a lot about this because so my book's called the gold standard of lettering and branding. The reason it's called the gold standard, it's an allusion to the British gold standard that was established in, you know, around 1819, but it failed because the, the gold standard is not the true, the true gold standard economically is what's called the confidence model, which is a fiat system. Now we have confidence or faith in the government or in the, the economy system that we have. Once that begins to wane, then the economy begins to falter. And so it's all based on confidence and the, and the faith bestowed by the people. And brands are very similar. Brands are successful based on the relationship and the values that we, you know, brands are essentially re- reciprocals of values um, that, that we identify with and we can align with. And, and never before in the history of the world have we had so much access to information where you can really look at a company and you can know everything about them. It's you crazy. can know where they're manufacturing their product. You can know the unethical components of them. Um, you can really research a company and, and, you know, obviously there are some companies where you just go for, for value. You just go, okay, I need something cheap. I'm going to go to this place. But some, a lot of brands are more aspirational where you go because you love what they stand for and they produce a product that fulfills a need that you have uh-huh. and, and economies. And, and it's all based on this confidence model. So in your work and in your life, how do you have enough confidence to overcome failure that we in that all inevitably will, will experience? Uh-huh. Anytime you try something new, anytime you try to push yourself, you're always going to encounter failure. And failure can be a component that can that can propel you to be successful and, and reanalyze and, and go back introspectively and figure out what you weren't doing correctly or what you need to adjust. Or sometimes failure can be can be you know it's like you know what maybe that's not the right path I need to take. Maybe I need to look at and, and go down a different path in life. And that's totally fine. I think we I think we intern and I do this too. And it can lead to immense depression. But when you internalize failure and you then view yourself as a failure, it's very hard to overcome that. And so I think some things you can do is it's like, well, you've got to look at the totality of your career. I've had tons of success, way more success than I've had failure. By far, I mean, you know, 80, 90, actually, it's kind of, it's, it's funny. It's actually kind of like the parade. I don't know if you're familiar with the Pareto distribution principle, which is, mm-hmm. I mean, roughly it's the 80-20 rule. Yep. Uh, and it's not quite that. You know, it's more, it's more accurately like the square root of the total. Like, for example, the square root of the total amount of stars in the sky has the majority of the mass. Yes. 20% of the people in America own 80% of the wealth. Yep. And that's that's and that and that's that's across any economic principle whether it's capitalism, socialism or communism. 
It's the, the Pareto distribution principle applies to all economic principles. You cannot overcome it. Um, you can, you can, um, you know, mitigate it somewhat, but you know, in my career, I really felt like I've, I've been on, on the higher end where the majority, 80, 90% of my products have been immense successes, but then you have these other failures. So I think you have to have, um, it's kind of like a, a threshold of failure. If, if you're doing and you're pursuing something and the majority of the time you just keep failing, everybody has a different threshold of how much they can take, how much pain, how much failure they can take before they just need to, to quit or try something else. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the universe is trying to tell you that you need, you need a different path in life. And that's totally fine. And you should find that as fast as you can. Like there's the great book, The Alchemist, which, you know, Santiago is trying to find his destiny. Once he finds it, once he discovers what it is, the whole universe combines to enable him to fulfill that destiny. To an, and that, that's, that's the, the, the Midas touch. Things turn to gold, right? Alchemy. And so in life, you have to discover for yourself what is your destiny, what is your, your, the path that you should be taking. And, once, and, and, you know, and it doesn't have to be, you know, having a great career. It doesn't have, you know, I mean, hopefully it has something to do with being responsible, being a contributing member of society, right? But maybe it's a different avenue in life. You know, maybe, maybe you're, you could be an exceptional, I don't know, I mean, you know, maybe you're, you really need to be an exceptional athlete. Maybe you're in the wrong program. You need to be a football player rather than a sprinter. I don't know, you know. Or maybe instead of a lettering artist, maybe you're an exceptional art director. You know, I have a friend who's he's a good designer, but he's an exceptional art director. Uh-huh. And so for him, it's better to, to art direct and have other people you know, who have different capabilities of him to be that. Me, I hate being an art director. I hate art directing and, and managing other designers. I want to be in the trenches because right, that's what, right, I, right. Yep. what I enjoy. And I've discovered that for myself, partly because I knew that through years of experience in my agency, I discovered what I did not like doing. So I was, I, I was able to then discover and find and try and tailor my career around my strengths and what I really enjoy doing. And I've found success in that. So Kevin, I love the journey that you sort of took us through of, you know, an experience that you've had in the past an experience and a challenge that you faced recently, and then sort of wrapped it up nicely with how you are sort of working your way through that because naturally you're human and you have challenges when, you know, you go through something like that. So I want to turn this bus around for you. And I want you to tell us about a project that you've been a part of that you are the most proud of. One that just makes your heart sing. Mm-hmm. Man, I'm most proud of. You know, it's, it's so hard because there's so many projects I'm so proud of. Um, mm-hmm. I would like to say that, you know, once I get this book out, that'll be like my magnum opus, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but, I'm not, but I'm not quite there yet. Uh-huh. You know, I'm really, I, okay, I'd say probably like, I'd say, cornerstone pieces that I would say define my career or put me on the map. You know, I'm super, it's funny because I look back now and I see all the imperfections in it, but I'm really proud of the Luminaris poster I did because I've never done a lettering piece. I've never, I've never done something like that. And I was super proud of that. Now in hindsight, the piece that I'm, I'm the most like, so the third poster in the series, the, the Terra poster, Terra, uh, you pronounce two, two R's as H in Portuguese. Uh-huh. But the, the Terra poster is probably the piece I might be the most proud of in my career because it was the one that pushed me the most. Uh-huh. Um, it was it was where I took the Sanborn map to a completely new level. It became it became my own piece, not just a replication of something else. And I think before that, I was simply replicating, and I still replicate in many ways. Uh, I, you know, for for time's sake and for a lot of things. But the tarot pieces, I think, where I took something and I made it my own, and and I learned so much in that process. And and, and that poster took me. My goodness, it took me over 400 hours, and I was still at my agency, and I would wake up at 4 a.m. every morning for like six months to work on that piece before work. And that's great. I mean, why would you do that? I wasn't getting paid for it, um, but I just felt like I needed to do this. I felt like I needed to do that. I needed to prove to myself what I was capable of doing and push myself to another level. 
And, and I did that. And, and I don't think I'll ever have another piece or attempt like that. For partly because I only had, I think I had one or two kids at the time. Now I'm, I'm going out of five. You know, I've got much more responsibility that I, that I, that I have to take care of in stewardship. Uh-huh. Um, and so that, that's a little bit more complicated. But but I'd say that, and then probably the Nike bat, um, yeah. because the Nike bat again was was applying that at a professional level, and and going into the darkness where I didn't even know if we could do it, and it worked out. I'd say I, you know I'd say those are probably the I'd say you know. The pieces I look back at, you know, working with Carlos Pagani, which we, you know, I have a really good friendship with Carlos Pagani, who's who's an exceptional designer, and and I don't know, like I mean, I'd, I'd say looking back, um, also I'd say the Cotton House Hotel, um, and even Fetchin Park, Fetchin Park maybe more so because that was my first attempt to merge custom lettering and a complex system of, of lettering into a, a, a systemized branding program, mm-hmm. and that and that really merged my two passions, which is lettering and branding. So I'd say those are, those are probably the pieces that I'm the most proud of. You know, I love the first two that you mentioned, the both the lettering poster and the Nike bat, because I feel like those are on almost two ends of the spectrum. Like mm-hmm. one of them is sort of a, an internal project for you. Like that was a personal endeavor. And the other one is, you know, this great project with lots of notoriety for a really well-known worldwide brand. So I love that yeah. you, you know, kind of pulled a, pro- a project that you're proud of from both of those categories. I love that. Yeah. Um, so Kevin, you lucky guy, you've reached the point of the show for the ask it forward question. It's <laughs> where I have a question for you from my last guest and you get the opportunity to ask a question of my next guest. I'm not going to tell you who they are, but you can ask them anything. Yeah. So my last guest was Amanda Weedmark. She is a designer with a whole pile of years of experience, 15 plus years in the game at uh, an architecture and engineering firm uh, in Vancouver, BC here. And her question was a simple classic one that I love. What is your favorite toy and candy from your childhood? (laughs) Oh man, favorite toy from childhood. Candy... You know, I used to love Turkish delights when I was in South Africa. Nice. Um, I'd probably say that. Although now, you know, I, I don't mind Turkish delights now, but again, I can't, I can't quite eat as much sugar as I used to when I was younger too. <laughs> but I'd say I really like Turkish delights when I was younger. I mean, maybe my mom would say it was something else. Um, but <laughs> yeah, favorite toy? When I was a kid, I loved the GI Joes. Yes. Loved playing with GI Joes. I would make these elaborate forts um, and have these epic battles, and and it, it was it was awesome. It was awesome, man. I loved that. Like, I was a big was action figure guy too. Like, <laughs> yeah, I would build cardboard forts, and then I would have like um, string zip lines running from the dining room table all the way down to the fort, and these guys would be hanging onto the zip line running down. <laughs> Oh, dude, that's awesome, man. Yeah. That's maybe you should be a designer rather than me. I don't think I was that creative as a kid. <laughs> <laughs> no, see, you gained creativity as you got older. I lost it, so I'm working on finding it. <laughs> you know, Picasso says we're all artists; we just grow out of it. You know. Yeah. Um, so, so Kevin, what is your question you would like me to ask the next guest? What is the most valuable thing in your life? Wow. Anyway, there you go. Valuable thing. So are you looking for an object or are you looking for just what is top value? Top value in your life. Valuable thing or person or whatever in your life. It could be anything. For me, I, and I ask that question because I believe that the thing that's the most valuable to you in your life is your God. 
and that defines all of your other value systems. Uh-huh. And then, and again, I mean, it doesn't have to be a Judo Christian or you know, Islam Buddha. Like, it doesn't have to be a traditional view of God. Because I think even people, I mean, myself a Christian, I think even that, because I, I think about this a lot lately, is what is the thing that, that drives me? What is the, because we all have a, a hierarchy of values, and at the top level, what drives us determines all the ones beneath that. Uh-huh. And for me, sometimes it's like, well, what is my, is it fame? Is it, is it approbation of my peers? Like, what is the most valuable thing to me? Is it relationships? Is it my wife? Is it, is it being kind? Is it loving? What is the mo- what to me at the end of the day? Because that I think is is the thing that will endure the most. And if it's not a correct thing, it should be reassessed so that you can find something that that passes the test of time that has longevity to it. And at the end of the day, I think will bring the most enduring sense of purpose to you. I couldn't agree more, and Gavin. I think that's a great way to wrap up the Quickie Podcast. Thank you so much for being my guest on the show today. I really appreciate your time. Uh, thank you. I appreciate you taking time to listen and thinking of me. So thank you very much. All right, that is the end of today's episode. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening today. I really appreciate it. Makes me smile. Have a fantastic day, and I will be back tomorrow. See ya.